This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with professional racing driver Sam DeJongi. He discusses the psychology of a driver and how this can affect him when at the wheel, techniques and challenges used to help improve his peripheral vision, which aided in performance, and the financial barriers within the sport. I hope you enjoy. Good. So Sam, first of all, I really appreciate you um, jumping on a little bit out of the blue in terms of me getting to touch, but put in touch via mutual friend, Alex Morris. Um, so yeah. how are you and how are things? Um, I'm fine. Um, I'm fine. Thank you. Um, it's, a, it's a different world that we're living in, but I guess um, as, as a race, we adapt quite, uh, quite quickly to everything. So it almost feels like a new normal, uh, which annoys me in a way. Um, it shouldn't, it shouldn't really be, but I guess that's what it is at the moment. So for me, that's also the case. I've adapted my working methods a bit, um, working from home, uh, not being on track, racing. Uh, so that's really two, uh, two very different things. Um, some things I've enjoyed and some things I, I've less enjoyed. So, yeah. It's a new sounds similar uh, dilemma to everyone in terms of yeah. some good bits to come out of all of this and then some pretty big uh, cutbacks as well. Um, yeah. For the people that kind of aren't aware of your background or don't know you, could you just explain kind of, I guess, some of your history and then kind of what your roles are at the moment? Yeah, so I started racing when I was seven years old. Um, I didn't come out of a racing or sporting family. So uh, they were just... Uh, my, my dad was, was a car fanatic, but uh, he didn't really know about karting at the time. So uh, I saw it when I was five, I saw it in a magazine and started asking my parents to have a go in a go-kart. <clears throat> but they didn't really know it, so they, they waited until I was seven. And then we went just to an indoor go-karting center. And there it really, <clears throat> I, we started and we, we really never stopped. So um, I think... From the beginning, I had a very clear view of trying to make it to Formula One. Um, that was really what I wanted to, uh, and, and after a while, thought that I was also capable of. Um, and basically, we just tried to um, get there in a way. Um, my parents, they both have, have good jobs. They work hard, um, so they could afford the karting, the go-karting period, I would say. But after that, motorsport becomes a very expensive uh, thing. Um, so, yeah, we, we really did it with trial and error. We didn't know anyone. Uh, so we didn't have any context to get into good teams or, or with the right people. Um, it's a treacherous world, uh, motorsports. Um, and we got pretty far um, all the way up to AutoGP at one point, which is single-seaters. I, I went through... Formula Renault, two liters, Formula 3, I was vice champion there. Um, and then basically it stopped at almost at the top of the single-seater ladder. Uh, and there I also felt that I, I wouldn't be able to, to find the money to really get to F1. So I, I did feel that I wanted to keep on racing. And uh, I was picked up at that point by the uh, national team of Belgium. So... Um, 
which uh, they have quite some good drivers, um, like Thierry Neuville from Rally or Stoffel van Dorne, who was in F1. Um, so they were good drivers. I wasn't there. They sponsored me for two years in touring cars. And then I got a deal for three years with Mahindra Racing in Formula E as a test and, and a reserve, reserve test and development driver. So I did a lot of work for them. And normally, um, I think this week I will, I will probably sign again with them um, for at least another year. But yeah, of course, it's difficult times in motorsport too. Uh, but that's at the moment where I am. And next to that, I do quite some coaching on track. Uh, for customers, um, and I also do the co-commentary for F1 in Belgium. Um, so, perfect. So obviously, there's there's quite a lot for us to dissect there. Um, I guess what what we'll start with for people that don't understand kind of the backstory behind like the financial implications of F1. Um, could you just explain kind of what the process is and why it's so challenging? And I guess when you're looking at the top level, why certain people may get seats ahead of other people, etc. Yeah, yeah. Basically, it's quite straightforward as it's very, yeah, it's just very money-driven. So in karting, you're already starting, and I will say the Euros, it's a bit easier for me, but um, let's say you are even out of, even on the national scene, if you're just racing in your country, on a good level, you have to train every week i mean compared to other sports in motorsports you train like not very often because already a day in a go-kart is around 500 euros just to go training uh, so no racing and then to do a re real season in inside your country I, I would say you're probably talking about between 30 and 50 thousand euros depending on how much you train and how much how many engines you buy for example but then internationally it goes a lot further so if you want to do really a lot of international races you're probably talking about 100,000 and i know people who were spending at the time 250 um, and that's just the first step of the ladder and then actually just progresses in the same way uh, it gets more extreme so to go into cars and single seaters you're, for the first step, you're probably paying around 250,000 euros. And then it actually, it really multiplies. It goes to 500,000 for, let's say, Formula 3. Um, and then it goes to 850. And then, let's say, the last step is Formula 2. And that will probably be around 1.5 million. Um, so that's, that's just the process or, of getting to F1. So there's no certainty at that point uh, that you will make it. And then to make the eventual step into F1, yeah, then it's really crazy. Then you need around, well, it depends, but between 10 and 20 million euros um, to buy a seat. Um, so that's in short the process. And I imagine that provides quite a few barriers for, for people um, in terms of you might be very you know, well respected or be doing well in the sport, but actually you haven't got the finances to take you through to do those final steps. Yeah, that's that's constantly the case. Um, I mean, many people don't make it. Good drivers, very good drivers. Um, they don't get a chance. And I do believe that there's a bit of a difference in your how strong you are mentally. Um, that's a big part of it. Because even though you don't 
have money uh, or, or it doesn't come easily. Um, I always uh, persisted in what I wanted to do and where I wanted to get. I didn't reach my goal, obviously, which was F1. And there I did uh, need like someone who would just hand me the money uh, because I, of, of course, you can't do presentations at companies and find 12, 20 million euros. It's basically impossible. Um, but because mentally I was, I was quite strong, I think. Um, I did reach my goal of being paid to be a racing driver. Uh, and I think there is a big, um, how do you say that? It's a big filter, let's say, for the people who really are persistent in it. And those who sometimes think they are persistent, but don't want to go all the way to, to get their goals. Yeah, I'm going to come back to the psychological side a little bit later on, because I, I think, um, and you'll be able to attest to this more, the, the psychology of a racing driver, I imagine, is fascinating in terms of the risk and reward of being part of the sport. And it's something I definitely want to delve into. I guess on a personal level, how, um, how frustrating is it to possibly see drivers that you might be better than or quicker than or... Um, I guess if you look at your comparable cars, they've got a better seat just because they've got more money. How frustrating for, is that for you and other drivers that are similar to you? Uh, super frustrating. And I think the younger you are, the more it is. Because I think if you're younger, you're still... I mean, you're, you're, your brain is not as developed, I think. If you're, if you're a bit older, um, you can give it a place. And, and, and then racing maybe is, isn't the only important thing in life. But when you're younger, is that is that there's only one thing you want to have so then it's very 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 frustrating to if you know that you're quicker but you don't have the cards uh, or you don't have the you didn't have the training uh, or something like that or don't have the team to do it, it it's very difficult um and this this stays the same when you go up to up the, up the ladder and i think which is double as difficult is the fact that just the fact that you know it is hard but the fact that the media know it but don't comment on it is extra hard because they just look at the results and they write articles about you based on those results but but no but um, never sorry uh, on on the process to get to those results so there's never uh, an article about well uh, that guy did three test days but the other one did 30. Uh, so there's never a comparison like that and that's i think maybe the hardest thing I think this year has been a really interesting, um, I guess, discussion point on that. When you had George Russell and the Lewis Hamilton situation, you've gone from George Russell being kind of at the back of the grid continuously with Williams, and then all of a sudden he gets into Mercedes and is absolutely flying. Now, obviously, because of mitigating circumstances, there's some issues and whatnot. But I think yeah. that probably did highlight to people that, uh, not a well, some of the time, it's actually the tools that, you're able, that are at your disposal rather than the actual talent of the driver that's causing the issue? Well, it depends how you look at it. I mean, the discussion of George Russell is probably good because it made a lot of people realize. But on the other hand, for me, it's a luxury discussion because for me, if you get to F1 and you're in there, this is some, something already you have to be very happy and proud about of course when you're there you want to you want to reach your maximum potential which i get but i mean 
I think it's harder for all those people who don't get the chance, never get the chance to be on a stage to show the world. At least George Russell is. And um, I think a lot of people see that. Um, but of course, we are in a sport that is not just driven by your physique or the training of your physique. It's, it's a combination of man and machine. Um, some people argue that's easier. Some don't. Uh, it's not easier. In my opinion, it's just it's a combination of factors and everything has to be perfect, uh, both man and machine and the harmony between them, between them. So if you get to F1, you're already of a level that you are very, very, very good. And probably any F1 driver being put in that Mercedes of Lewis Hamilton will do well. Not as well maybe as George Russell when he was in. Uh, I think he's, an, he's, a, he's a very big talent, obviously. But all of those guys who are there are very good already. So the difference in time is in the car, mostly. I guess when you're around a around a paddock, is everyone aware of those splits? So does everyone know who maybe, and this is an extreme example I'm going to give, Lance Stroll, whose dad's essentially bought a team to make sure that he has a seat, compared to other people that you know are having to work really hard to get sponsorship or get themselves a seat. Is everyone aware of the situation within the paddock? Yeah, yeah, everyone knows that, and of course it's 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 been talked about the whole time, um, which is also a bit of a treacherous thing because you could make it for yourself as an excuse to not do as well. Um, so it's easy to, to lose yourself in, well, but he has a better car and his dad bought the team and obviously he has the best engines, and which is probably the case. But it's such a, diff it's a, such a difficult thing not to focus on but actually you shouldn't um, because it takes away the focus on your own driving. Uh, so it's difficult. Yeah, no, I imagine. I think, you know, the, the Perez-Stroll situation this year is an interesting one because the dynamic and in his example, you're going to know very well that it's not weighed in your favour considering who the owner is. But at points he's done very well this year and to a degree has secured himself a, more high profile seat going forward to next season yeah 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 i think that's true i think that's true um so looping back to something that you just said there and you you looked at kind of man and, and machine and stuff and it's a combination of the two uh something that i think obviously is going to be highly influential in in motorsport is kind of the use of analytics around um, I guess, gaining data. And I imagine as your role as kind of test driver, et cetera, that's going to be a large proportion of what you do. So can you just explain kind of through practice sessions, what type of data you get in and then how does that transfer into a race weekend, a qualifying session, et cetera? Yeah, well, I will, I will make a difference between Formula E and the rest okay. of the racing um, stuff because it's, it's miles apart. Formula E is very data-driven. Um, of course, we work with electric engines, which, which is a new thing. So we try to get as much as numbers in as we can. So, but for a normal racing series, um, yeah, you start off uh, with practice. If it's on a new track, they give you a bit more time to adapt to it. Um, you do one session and most of the time in the beginning, there's not that much focus on data because at that point, you're probably not on the level uh, of or being on the limit of what you can do and the car can do on the track. So 
let's say that would probably give false data. Uh, it's data, but it's so far off where you're going to be in two hours time. It doesn't really uh, make sense to analyze it too much. So they give you... Um, they give you some time to adapt. They give you info about split sector times. So you, you divide a track in, into most of the time three sectors. And they say, for example, well, your first sector is very good, but your second, which is a very technical and twisty part, isn't. So that gives you a, a, um, an idea of how you are doing, where your strengths are at that moment, but also already a bit where the car is doing well or not. So let's say if that first sector is is fast corners and straights, then you know, okay, we have, a, we have a fast car, but we're missing in the technical parts. So it gives you already an idea. So basically you already are, are already analyzing a bit, um, but then when the day progresses or the weekend progresses, this gets, uh, there, there's a lot, lot more focus on the data side and basically they can, they can see everything. So there are, I think maybe a hundred sensors on a car and well, those sensors give you um, or tell you something. Uh, a big chunk of those sensors aren't for the driver. So it's, it's basically engineering stuff that we don't really have to know. Um, but then when you start to look at the angle of the steering wheel in every corner, the brake pressure is one of the biggest uh, in, in racing uh, instead uh, or, or in comparison with driving a normal car. You really stamp on the brakes as hard as you can, as hard as you can, with all your force. So normally we, we put around 100, 130 kilos on the brake pedal, uh, every, every braking zone. And then you bleed off the brakes. And that whole process is quite a complicated thing. Uh, so there's a lot of, of, of focus on that. And then throttle, of course, uh, how much throttle you apply everywhere. So those three things are... are, are mostly analyzed at that point. And then what, I guess the engineers back at, uh, in, the, in the paddock, are, I, I imagine looking after parts that might have to be used over multiple races or serious areas of concern, etc. cetera. Um, how quickly are they able to kind of analyze that data and flag up to you if there is an issue with something or if you are losing time because of certain issues? Well, they know it quite quickly. Um, there's normally, of course, the, the, the higher you go up the ladder, the more engineers you have for one car. So uh, on the top level, also in Formula E, you have, well, basically around 10 to 12 engineers looking at your car. And they all have their own task. Um, they all have their own data, their own numbers, their own graphics. So they, they sort of their own graphs. So they, they, they can really see quite quickly, okay, in my area, something's not right. Um, and they will probably, before telling you, will discuss it between the line of engineers who's responsible for your car. Um, and then after, when you get out of the car and there's a real debrief with everyone, um, then it's also discussed with you. But if it doesn't, directly translate to you as a driver if you can't really do something about it or it doesn't affect you that much they won't tell you uh, but of course if you're losing from one lap to the other one and a half seconds and it has to do with the car and you can't fight uh, for example during a race because of it yeah then they will inform you to yeah just do your job and try to stay on track but 
we're going to lose basically can, can they do anything remotely are they able to adapt any like pressures or anything remotely or does it all have to be during a pit stop or between practices yeah yes yeah it's it's it, they can't do anything remotely they can they can see everything remotely it's not allowed in every series though um it's probably a, most of the time it's limited to a certain extent where you can view um as a, as a team um from a distance but in the higher cars like f1 formula e you can do a lot uh, as a driver there are a lot of um uh, buttons you can push and, and menus you can go into which is quite complicated when you're driving obviously but normally you know the systems and if you don't they will guide you through it um to to do a reset or to, to do something to change the attitude of the car so <clears throat> obviously what you've linked to there is kind of from corners corner uh, you know drivers are able to adjust etc so looking at spa obviously which i know you'll know particularly well what type of changes would they make going from corner to corner? Obviously, to begin with, you've got quite a sharp turn, followed by a long sweep in rights and lefts, etc. So what, what would they do on that type of lap to get the car to perform as its optimal for them? Yeah, in a GT car, you can, you can tweak like the, the, the traction control coming out of the corner to have more or less traction. Also in prototypes, you can do that. Um, it can have to do uh, with the ABS, uh, so the braking uh, can be adjusted, um, steering wheel input, let's say. So we have, in most of the cars, you have power steering, so you can adapt the level of that uh, to give you more or less um, feeling. You can change the brake bias, so that means uh, is there how much percentage of the braking is at the front or the rear. Um, and this can affect, for example, um, the tire temperature so if, if you feel like you have understeer so that means that when you steer into a corner and you feel that the front tires are not really gripping that's understeer um, you can do something to put less pressure on those tires because if you're already having trouble um, sometimes they're overheating or they're underheating and then you have to put more pressure on the front so um, and that's the same with the rear so there are quite some adjustments on that level, in Formula E, for example, this has a lot to do. A lot uh, of it has to do with the energy management of the battery. So there's a lot of ways uh, and things to do that influence how much energy you're using and how you're using it. Um, we also regenerate um, energy uh, when we're braking, um, and we can also do it with a pedal on the steering wheel when we're not braking. So when we're just coasting, so when we don't brake or don't apply throttle, we have a pedal on the steering wheel to just regenerate. And then we brake a bit, but not by using the brakes. Um, so there's a lot of things um, to change, to tweak. Um, of course, wings and stuff and aerodynamics, this is fixed. Uh, you can't really change it. Um, and the rest of it is, is uh, quite open, depending on the level where you are in motorsports. And so how much, on, on a, a race day, I guess, how much of the time for a driver is spent managing tyres or managing energy compared to kind of going at the speed that I think everyone would like you to go at all the time? What's, what's the comparison between those two? Um, I think managing tyres and, and, let's say, fuel is something you learn along the way and is also very dependent on the series that you're driving in. 
Um, I think when you're a professional driver driving in a series for, let's say, longer than a year, you're quite used to how to manage that. So that mm, it becomes a bit of uh, part of your driving style, let's say. So you're not really focused on, on, on doing that job. Um, so I think when, when you're used to it, you get into a frame where you can push within that frame that you know you're not destroying the tires or burning all the fuel. And then you're pushing as hard as you can in that frame. If they ask you to do quicker and they say, okay, it doesn't matter, it's five laps and you can push. Uh, we have enough fuel in the tank and the tires will probably last. Um, then you can go to the next level and, and you know how. In Formula E, it's, it's the trickiest, I think, at the moment in motorsport because, as I said, with the, all the, the energy in, in the battery is quite complicated. So there, um, there it's a very difficult process. You really have to, for a big part of the race, you're under driving. You're actually maximizing the speed you have with the energy you can burn. But that's so limited that, of course, if you would look at it from a driving side, you're driving very slow. But to be inside that frame of not using too much, but you're able to be quick, quick, which is four, five, six, seven, eight seconds, sometimes slower than your qualifying time, is very, very hard. So it's 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 maybe weird, but it's it's a mindset. If you if they tell you to go all out like you do in a qualifying session with all the power available and you don't have to mind the tires, do one or two quick laps, you do it, um, and and it's hard. And that's probably the most enjoyable for us as drivers, but. On the other hand, in a race, it's also very hard, even being eight seconds slower. So it's a complicated um, process. Have Have you seen uh, people challenging strategies with that? Because I'd imagine like some teams may have tried, will go hard early, try and create a you know a gap from everyone else and try and maintain that, where others might go for if we can just stay within the pack, we'll go hard later on. Or so is is that probably part of Formula E that you don't get in? other types of racing um yeah well you 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 do get it in other types but probably in a, in a less exaggerated way um and i think that works but it only works out when the rest of the pack is doing what you expect them to do so that's a difficulty also about racing um you have 20 24 cars and they all are a part, are a parameter within that race. And, and their change of plans can change the whole race, basically. So you can make a strategy, but the rest of the cars also have an influence on that. And, and it basically changes every lap. So I think when it works out, it's because most of the plan you had in mind of what the others would be doing, um, that they are exactly doing that. So then in the end, you have the result of, okay, I went hard in the beginning. There weren't any troubles behind or big safety car procedures or, or something like that. And it worked out. But with that same strategy and a different start or a different, well, race that can really um, fall into the water. So, Yeah, I guess the, the safety car thing is an interesting one because you could, be, you could have done really well. You've gained a lot of time. You're miles ahead. Someone crashes safety car all of a sudden you're right by the person and they've got a lot more energy in store than you i guess that's always a tipping point you know teams and drivers are making in terms of how hard do we go and when is the right time etc 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, as a driver, I think you don't try to think about it because it's a it's something that happens within the race, and you also wait or await the feedback of your team at that point uh, of what to do. It's always good to um, to be able to to have an idea in mind when it happens. So I think, as in every sport, it's good to be prepared mentally. Uh, so if you can think along with your team, it's it's easier. Um, uh, yeah, you're just better prepared. But most of it is is them on the pit wall. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of smart smart guys there, and and they also have uh, they're they're under pressure as we are in the car, but they have a lot more info. So. So one question, um, which kind of links to the sport that I'm in, which is mainly football, um, and there's kind of like an analytical side that's being introduced into football more and more. And um, I think the challenge for us at the moment is to be guided by data or use of data, but not be driven by it and you know, look for that. For you as a driver, how do you balance that? Because I'd imagine, like you said there, people could say to you, oh, you're struggling on this sector or this corner. Um, so how much do you do by feel or how much do you do by looking at data and figuring out where there are issues and whether it's your driving and in your cornering or whether it's the car setup or whatnot. So how, how does that yeah. look? Cause I can imagine that'd be quite challenging to figure out which one's which. Well, I don't, I don't think it's very challenging as it's just part of who you are. And if you follow that, that's probably the best way you can go. So I am from, in my nature, let's say, I'm not very analytical. I wasn't good at maths in school. I was very bad, actually. Um, when, it, when it came down to physics, um, also in school, I did understand because it was more something I could link to my racing uh, and which interested me. Um, but I'm not someone who's naturally talented with numbers or being quick with numbers. So being like this, I always try and figure it out myself. Uh, and that's the same with my approach in a car. So I, what I like is that people, when I drive a car at first, for me, the best thing to do is just to be almost left alone and try to figure out my ways. But I do have a very natural feel of what the perfect line to drive is. Um, and I'm someone who also in daily life, I reflect all the time. Uh, uh, it's something that naturally happens. And I also do it in a racing car and that this probably speeds up my process of learning something. So I was always able to learn quite quickly, a new car, a new track and be quick at it. On the other hand, I, I, I believe 100% that you need data. Uh, I also enjoy looking at data with someone, with a good engineer, it's very enjoyable. But also there, there's a difference between approaches. Um, because some engineers, or most of the engineers, in, in, in comparison with me, they are very analytical. So they are very talented on that side. Um, and they also believe in it firmly. And they, they believe less in psychology and, and stuff like that most of the time. So they say, this is a number. So it is like this. And um, that's sometimes difficult. Uh, you have to find a very good harmony between those two sides. And that's also why they always say your engineer has to be a, a person that's very close to you, where you're comfortable with, because you have to believe each other. Also, even when you're very different in many ways, 
Um, but he has to be, he has to maybe try to be, be a bit more, and I don't mean this in an offensive way, to be a bit more human. You have to be also able to understand the analytics of it and believe them and also follow it. Um, so for me personally, I always try to do that approach to just learn a big chunk of it myself and then, and then try to make it smoother, better, um, perfection it basically uh, with the data I have at hand. It's interesting that you mentioned kind of your learning style in terms of kind of what you were at school and how that's transpired through. Is that something that teams and whatnot take into consideration when they're hiring drivers or not? No, not really, I think. Um, in the end, it always comes down to almost one thing, which is lap time. Um, the way you do it, if you're very quick, you can, you can afford to not maybe look at as much data. So I think a professional driver can do both. And you're hired on, on maybe those two things, on being a professional um, and being quick. But being quick is always at the, at the top of the list. So if you're quick, look at Kimi Raikkonen. I mean, he hates being a simulator and he doesn't uh, go to, to the team to do it. So, I mean, this is very, in, in these times, it's very abnormal to not go. But he can basically afford it because... I mean, he is always quick in his own way. And sometimes teams understand that if you're from a certain level, you also have to be given the space to do it in your own, in your own way. So I, I wouldn't say you are hired uh, from that point of view. In the end, they look at the end product, I think. And the higher you go, the, the more professional it has to be. If you're hired by a, by a big brand, you have to be quick, but you also have to be able to talk with big sponsors or to be in the hospitality after the race and, and be smart and kind and um, yeah, you have to do a lot of things. Yeah, I, I just wonder whether if you had um, teams and individuals that were necessarily unsuited or better suited, so you might have teams where the engineers are very empathetic and actually they'll listen to the driver in terms of how they feel when they're going around the track and, you know, they're saying, I feel this. Whereas if you have that same driver who's with a very analytical team, that's probably a real challenging environment to be in. So I was just wondering if that was something that was consideration. Um, how, often do, how often do you compare your, your cornering times or lap times, et cetera, to teammates or other people? Or how much is it just on kind of your best efforts or your qualifying or your best lap? Yeah, um, well, you compare a lot with other drivers um, because you can't really compare with yourself. Um, if you do a best lap and you have the data of that lap, then that's the ultimate thing on, at that moment at hand. It doesn't mean that that's the ultimate. Um, so it's your personal best. Um, if you're quick at the, quickest at that point, of, of course, it's easier because um, that's the quickest time. But the thing is, the perfect lap doesn't really exist. I mean, it's a cliche, but it, it doesn't because then you would be on every inch of the track on the maximum combination of car, tires, track, track temperature, etc. Um, so I think a perfect lap, it doesn't really exist in real life. But to get as close to it as possible, sometimes, even if you're quickest and you're quickest by half a second, then that's already in, in racing terms a lot. 
still there could be some parts of a corner that another driver was better. He did a better braking zone, he did a better entry to the corner, a better exit. He applied the throttle better. And I think that's the part where you start copying from others, if you can, to perfect your own style. Sometimes it's a bit, but that's also difficult. When you're quickest, it's very difficult because you're quite sure of yourself and you're like, okay, I don't need it. If you're slower, of course, you want to copy as much as you can because obviously you're, you're having trouble. So you need good teammates uh, in your team to be able to compare yourself. Um, I was one, my first year in single-seaters, I was the only driver and the only car of that team. So my learning curve in the beginning, it wasn't bad, but I would say compared to my, the years that followed, was quite slow uh, because I couldn't really learn from anyone. Uh, you don't get data from other teams or other drivers, of course. So it's really within your team that you have to do it. Um, and later on, when I was in, in Formula 3, um, I, started, I came out of that first year. And even in the beginning of that second year in Formula 3, I was, I was struggling a bit with speed. But then, then I started catching up. And at the end, I was the quickest of a team. Um, and the year that followed, I was also the quickest. So um, that's what, because I could learn from, from other drivers. So it's, it is very important. And would you have dialogue with the other drivers in your team? Say, like, would you say, for example, turn three, I'm really struggling with, I'm, I'm losing two temps, whatever that is. Would would you go and speak to your your teammate and say you're doing this a lot better than I am at the moment? What are you seeing that I'm not? Um, it's difficult. It's difficult. I think no driver really wants to elaborate on that. Um, there's normally in every team there's a, there's a main hub uh, um, where all the data is on and now every engineer can go into the hub and, and look for data in the different maps um, and then you compare with, between between you and, and, and the other driver but it really really depends on the team at, atmosphere I think in single seaters when you're all aiming to go to F1 you're really protective protective about what you're doing when you're in GTs and you have to drive with three, three drivers on a car um, or a prototype, then you have to work together. So that's totally different. No, most of the time, that's already later in your career. Most of the time, you're all making money with doing it and you want to win as a team, as a car. Um, but when it's one car, one engineer, one driver, it's, very, it's a very difficult and selfish environment. Uh, you don't have a lot of friends and even if you have that main hub with all the data, when it really gets, when the, when the situation gets at a point when, when there are really difficulties between drivers, it's really difficulties that, that you start to feel within the team between engineers, mechanics even from that or that car. So it really gets divided. Um, so, yeah. Of course, we, we steal each other's data, but we don't really speak about it. Yeah, I think it's interesting. You do see fractious relationships kind of at the top end, particularly high profile. You look at someone like Max Verstappen at the moment, seems like every teammate that goes in there, it's a real challenging environment for them. So it'd be really interesting to see kind of behind closed doors what, what the challenges are and what the environment is. Um, how much does driver style come into this data as well? Because I imagine, although you're 
trying to pick up tips and learn from other people. Everyone will have their unique ways of driving. Um, some might be a slightly more rough on the car, some might be slightly smoother. So how important is it to balance that into your thinking as well? Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's again more a mental thing, I think. And that's also something the engineer um, or your engineer has to help you with. So it's important to make a difference between indeed things you can learn and have to learn from another or one another or things that are in the, indeed linked to your, your own style, but don't, don't make you slower. So you can, you can have a lap time in different ways, um, but most of the time there's a best way to take a corner. And so you look at it corner by corner. Even if you have the same lap time, you still try to look, okay, actually the way that he entered that corner and after that corner, there's a long, long straight, it's better to do that. Or when there's a corner where, which is followed by other corners, you have to approach it in a different way. So I think all of the time you try to learn. Um, and most of the time the engineer says, okay, okay, you can see in the, in, in, in this, in, in, um, in the data that, yeah, he's a bit quicker here and he's a bit quicker here, but then you gain again here. So in the end, taking a corner and dividing it at the end, you were as quick or a bit quicker, although you lost in the beginning. And most of the time, a good engineer translates that to you have to adapt or not. So I think, yeah, it's, it's something that's based on the, on the, yeah, the way you work with your engineer. So obviously we just discussed a little bit um, in terms of the psychology earlier on and something that I think is fascinating. So I guess the easiest question to start with, when you're sitting at the start of a race um, and you've got all the, all the other cars and people around you and it's just the cars and the, the drivers. What's that feeling like for you in that moment? It's, it's difficult. I think as with every sport, it's intimidating. Um, I mean, it comes down to how much you believe in yourself and you really have to believe in it. Like you have to be convinced that you're the best, I think. Um, or one of the best. I mean, you can you can be the quickest and still respect the others, of course. Um, but I think at the start of the race, it's something that goes to the max. That thought process goes to its maximum volume. So then you're really starting to stress out uh, a bit. Uh, for me personally, I can only talk for myself, of course. Uh, it didn't always have to do with I did, it, 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 has, it had to do more with the, the, the anxiety about failing or to fail than, than, than it was about the other drivers. I just didn't want to make my own mistakes. I just wanted to, be, to do the perfect job. And I knew that I, if I did, I, was, I would be quickest and I would win. But it was more that thought process of, damn, I don't want to make a mistake at the start or... Yeah, you just go through the, the emotions and, 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 and the possible situations in a race. But like with every sport, I think there are people naturally who have less uh, influence from it or just relaxed uh, naturally. Uh, and then there are people who are very, very stressed out. But I think both, both, both types learn along the way to manage it better. And how do you manage kind of the risk reward 
um, situation of driving. Because I'd imagine there's going to be points where you're going to try overtakes um, that might be, you know, a little bit sketchy, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Um, or, you know, if you make a mistake on this corner, you're out of the race. So how do you manage that that pressure as a driver? Um, I think um, I think you learn it by doing it. So it's a bit trial and error. Um, but I think when you're really convinced that you're quick, it's not super hard. You really have to be just, I mean, you're a few balled up basically and the adrenaline is pumping. So when you would be outside the car, you would think about doing uh, an overtake. It's, it's different to when you're in the car. When you're in the car, you're, there's a lot of, of excitement of driving the car and the adrenaline is really going through your veins. So it just makes you a bit braver, I think. Um, but of course, you do think about, is it a smart thing to do when you're driving in second position? You feel that you're really quicker and you have eight laps to go. I think you think about a strategy of approaching it. And then you also have quite a lot of opportunities to try and do it. Uh, but when you're in the last lap and you're fighting for a podium position or you're fighting for the win even, it's, yeah, you have a lot to lose too. So, um, yeah, it, it's very difficult. I think it really depends on the moments um, in a race, but also a moment in the championship uh, where, where it's maybe stupid to do it. Uh, at the beginning of the season, I think you're a lot more relaxed because the influence of the action isn't that big. Uh, if you try it and you're out, okay, it's the first race of the season. You still have 10 races to go. I mean, you can make, you can make up for it. Um, on the other hand, maybe for me, which had more of an influence, was the fact that I couldn't really afford to crash out because I, I couldn't, I couldn't pay, for, uh, pay for the spare parts. So I always, I, I learned to try and drive on the limits with my wallet in my pocket, let's say, uh, and knowing, okay, I, I can't try something really stupid or super dangerous. Uh, but within that uh, state of mind, I try to maximize it, yeah. Do you think, <clears throat> say, for example, you had billions of pounds behind you to support you in that, do you think it would have changed some of your decision-making? Oh, yeah, a lot of it. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it, it, it would have changed my approach. Um, in what way do you think? I would be more free to try stuff, also on test days. Um, of course, I, I would do more, test, more testing, a lot more than I did in my life. Uh, but I, I would also be able to, I mean, if you ride off a car, that, that's a learning thing. So you try something and you feel, okay, that was over the limit. It makes the idea of where the limit is more, um, more how do you say it, um, more precise. So every time you would do that, you would get a clearer uh, view on how it would feel to almost go over it. So you get better at it. So that's what training is all about. And I would for sure uh, have been able to do a lot more training and a lot more crashing also. Um, so yeah, it, it would have changed my approach a lot. Um, I, I'm happy with how I did it uh, up to this point with, with the backing I had or the lack of backing I had. But yeah, if, if I would have more money, it would have been better for sure. 
No, I think it's a really interesting discussion point because you, you, you know, linking this to other sports, maybe there's not the financial implications to all of it. Granted, you've got contracts and stuff, so there will be a little bit. But to a degree, you're looking at it and going, what's the external pressure? So is it a regular, you know, Sunday morning game that someone's playing in or training session? Or is it a World Cup final? And how does that affect the decision-making? I think it's really interesting to hear you talk about how the financial implications for you can have it and, you know, where you are in a season or tournament can then affect the bravery and stuff beyond that. Do you think that as you become more and more successful and you win more and more races, do you think that you become more brave in making those decisions? Yeah, I think so, because you get, I mean, you get more, you're more self-assured. Um, and also, if you're doing very, very well, it doesn't really matter if you do, if you do, if you get it wrong one time. Um, your reputation will, will probably stay on. Um, and when you're still building that reputation, um, every time you 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 don't use the opportunity to shine, that's yeah, that's an important one. Uh, so it's a big chunk of of build of the building process. Um, and so yeah, I think you get stronger, you get braver. Although I do think that being at the front um, probably takes a bit away from your your skill of of overtaking. Um, and I think that's also what you saw with Russell um, when he jumped into the Mercedes and he overtook Bottas on a very tricky point on the track. It was it was a beautiful overtake. Um, you see that when you're Bottas and you're at the front at the front for the past three years, most of the time behind Hamilton but in second position. Nah, there's not the urge to do better than that. Of course, you want to win, but you don't have to. You're not fighting with a car that just isn't quick enough and there you saw the 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 the, uh, the upside of being in a bad car is that you also learn to maximize the elements more um, so I mean I think it's very tricky when you're in the best car to to get into a sort of lazy laid-back position where you think you're being at your best because you're at the front but basically you're there because your car you're, you're of course a good driver but you're there because the car is helping you to be. Um, I mean, and I think if you would put Bottas or even Hamilton in the Williams, I think in the beginning, they would not do the same job as Russell is doing now. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Obviously, I know you mentioned earlier, you do a little bit of like driver development stuff. On this side, is there any work you do with them in terms of managing expectations managing psychology managing themselves during races yeah yeah i mean for me it's more something i i don't um of course i'm a driver coach i'm no i'm no psychologist um both of my parents are so i learned a bit from from them uh but it's not my job and it's not my expertise um so i try to more learn them a way of thinking uh, but not as a um, how do you say not that not as a as a as a as a thing on itself. I just try and feed them through 
driver coaching, but also get the psychology part uh, uh, between it. So it's more, more, more like one package because I think a lot of drivers, they don't really like that part. And, and they think that if they have to think about it, it gets worse or they, get, they lose their confidence or something like that. So for me, I really combine it. I, 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 if I talk about taking a corner, I try to say also like how, how you feel at that moment in the corner and why you should do it. So yeah, I don't really focus on it, but, but it probably is a big part of my coaching. I think that's interesting describing the feeling for them and how you feel when you go for that corner. It's quite a simple way of doing it, but I'd imagine it, you know, it frames that for them in terms of what, what their expectation might be. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's more, what I I always find very important is the, the intention when getting into a car, but also the intention of approaching a race or being in the sport in general. I mean, for me, it's very, when I work with young drivers, there's always a lot of expectations from the parents. They think their son or daughter is going to be the next big thing. And that's okay to think it. Um, but I always try and also guide them by saying, okay, honestly, I mean, you're putting quite a lot of money in. And I see if a driver is enjoying himself or not, but also how focused he is to get somewhere and I was very focused from a young age to I had a clear goal, F1. And I'm not saying you should have that when you're 10 years old. That's maybe difficult. But when you get to an age of 14, 15, 16, I do think that a clear goal and focus should be there. And if I feel that there's a lack of it, um, that's when you also... Then I also lose a bit of interest because then I think, okay, it doesn't really want it. Uh, if you want to do it as a hobby, fine, but then then it has to be clear cut. Okay, it is a hobby. We're not trying to push him into motorsports and pouring a lot of money in. Um, so for me, it's really more uh, the intention of what you want to do. And if you're not motivated enough to to go to the end to reach your goals, uh, well, okay, then you go, go go karting sometimes, like every two or three weeks, but. Yeah, but that changed someone... your delivery to the individual. So if you, if they made explicit from, you've got one person here that says, I want to be an F1 driver, to another one that says, I'm just doing this for a hobby that I really enjoy. Would that change your delivery between those two individuals? Well, it, it changes a bit the point of view from my side, of course, and the way I approach it, yes. Um, of course, I always try and deliver my job. Um, but I do it based on what the customer wants. And if the customer is, is a daughter of, or son or someone who is, is still quite young and wants to get somewhere, I will approach it in a more also analytical way um, and, and, and treat it as such. Uh, but if someone says, see, Sam, I want to be better at driving, but I don't want to uh, per se um, get somewhere in motorsport. I just want to enjoy myself. I also try to not give them too much details or too much data because that's even, that's not really a fun thing to do. Um, so you can also, I had some customers who, who were racing on track with racing cars um, and um, they, I, I, I approached it in a very analytical way and they said, see Sam, I really appreciate what you're doing, but we're also here to enjoy ourselves. We're, we're not here to just learn. 
so give us also time to to enjoy being here and yeah there's a time to learn and to do your coaching but don't exaggerate in it um so that was i think six years ago and that was also a point where, where i learned okay you really have to adapt the delivery of your coaching to what the demand of the person is yeah i think it's interesting and probably being you know getting buy-in from parents or the children or whoever it may be to make that explicit goal gives you an idea of what the delivery might be you know when you're driving around the track do you, will you have like a mental checklist of what you need to hit as you're going around or do you go off what you've done in the simulator or practice wraps and laps and etc how does that work in terms of trying to fulfill a lap and like psychologically why um i think the best way to approach it for me um and depending on your previous experience with a with a track or simulator experience two different things if you you've been in a simulator it helps a lot with knowing how a track goes um uh, of course for us if if you started off when you were young and you were learning a track it's something your brain learns to do very quickly so if people even on a playstation or, or on a simulator with friends they say i can't remember the, the corners where they're going even in real life i have people who say well after 20 laps I, I always think that this corner is going left and it's going right when you're a racing driver and you start off in karting we need one lap to know the track even a new track and then you perfect it of course uh, but you don't need more time to really know where the corners are going um, so if you know the track I think you feel very confident on it and then in the beginning you start to feel what the conditions are is there a lot of grip or, or is there's a bit of moist or not um, and then when you really start to push I think it's something that you try to perfect every inch of that lap, every braking zone, the way you apply it, the cornering. But in a way, when there's a quality lap, where you really have to, to do a very quick lap, you're very focused, but there's a part that you really, you dive into the unknown. There's a part where you have to do extra than you know to be extra quick. And yeah, or you get it right, or you get it wrong and you go off. But that's, I think, mentally probably the, the biggest challenge to, to say, okay, I know this, but now I'm going to add 10% of the unknown and I'm just going to try it and hopefully it sticks. Um, so I think mentally that's, that's the biggest thing in racing. When you have to deliver, there's a pressure of, of delivering it. There's also the pressure of, am I going to be able to manage it even when I go a bit quicker than I ever did? on that corner um so that i think yeah a quality lap is probably from a mental point of view the most interesting thing during your racing weekends so talk about that why why do you think that is um i mean of course it it, it is actually uh, and that's maybe from an ego uh, point of view it's the only moment during a racing weekend where you can say who the quickest is because during a race, it doesn't really matter who the quickest is. It really depends on how your race goes and how you approach it. But it not, it's not always defined by who the quickest is at that point. So the, the, the quality, there's a lot of eyes on you. Everyone is looking at you. Uh, all the other teams, all the other team bosses, all the other drivers. Uh, there's a big expectation from within your own team. 
uh, you know that it's very important because starting at the front of the grid just changes your whole racing weekend. Uh, but for me, I still think the biggest thing is being satisfied with what you've done or not. And I think uh, when you're an experienced racing driver, you feel when you've under-delivered or not. And you really want to, you want to have used all the potential of yourself and of the car. Uh, and I think when that's not fulfilled, it's very frustrating. You say, fuck, that, that could be quicker, could have been quicker. Uh, it's, it's a tiny inch, but it, it should have been quicker. Even when you're on pole, you're always thinking that wasn't perfect. And it's just a feeling that you get at the end of that lap. Like when it was good, then you know it. Uh, you don't even have to look at the time. And do you have to manage yourself? Because obviously you've got your out lap and then you know that this is might be your one shot. This is your qualifying time. What are you going to do here? As you're approaching the final couple of corners to then ramp it up to start the qualifying lap, is there like anticipation? Is it calmness? What does that look like from inside the cockpit? What are you trying to say to yourself to prepare yourself ready for that qualifying lap? Um, I think... Some people do some exercises. I sometimes do it. Uh, there are a lot of ways to get your brain to focus. Um, focusing on one point in the distance or, or looking at something and counting just to make your analytic uh, uh, part of your brain awake enough to be focused. Um, but you also indeed have to find calmness in your breathing um, and... I mean, it's very easy and I had a lot of times and it's still difficult to get it always right, is that you're overhyped. You know, you're really you're ready to go. The adrenaline is pumping, but you have to have like a lot of adrenaline, but still have like calmness within yourself to deliver it. Because you always, if you're, if you're too hyped, you start to make mistakes and you're, you're too, there's too much tension in your body, I think. So that combination, I think, is quite tricky, but that's, for me is what I try to achieve before a lap that my analytical side is awake but that my my em, maybe emotional side is more uh down to earth <laughs> and how did you begin to learn that how did you begin to master that skill of kind of mm -hmm. calming yourself to a point where you can be analytical what you're doing and try and take a little bit of the emotion out I think a big part of it is self-reflection uh, which I, which I of course did from the start, and, and which came naturally for me. And my parents, parents probably pushed me a bit into it. So after a while, when I grew up, it became part of me. It wasn't really an exercise, um, but I also seeked some help from coaches uh, who would work with other um, um, athletes on that side of the story. So really, the mental part. Uh, I also did a lot of eye training. So that's actually an, an interesting one. Um, but when I was when I was growing up, I, I still have very good eyes so eyesight. So I'm, I'm lucky to have that. Um, but my mom was working with someone who was specialized, and he was also hired at one point by an F1 team. Um, a Belgian guy was specialized in eye training, eyesight training, and they actually only worked with people with learning disorders in schools um, and by doing a lot of exercises, basically the eyesight of the, of, the, of the students became better. And most of the time the grades went up too. Um, so at a point where I was in karting, I had a lot of starting crashes. Uh, 
because in karting, when you're not driving a shifter cart with gears, it's a, it's a rolling start. So you were 34 carts. And when I became stressed, my eyesight really closed up and I really like tunnel vision. Um, and I didn't see, I, I didn't have the, like the peripheral sides where I saw everything and I got into a lot of crashes. And at a point we said, okay, this has to stop. Uh, why is it? And then we started to, to work with, with, with the guy uh, and he started to train me and well, I, the funny thing was at that point uh, in time in school, my grades were really below average and my eyesight became better. I didn't crash anymore and my grades went up like this and I, I, I graduated as second best of class um, and I didn't learn more or study more or change my approach. But what he said, and I thought that was interesting, is that your, eye, your eyes and your eyeballs are basically um, parts of your brain that, are, that you can see or are, uh, how do you say it, go outwards out of your head. So it's as you train your brain in school, you can also train your eyes. We don't use the full potential of our eyes. And um, yeah, you can, there, there could be people who say, I don't believe it, but you can prove it. Um, and what I learned to- What things are you doing with you to try and improve this? There, there are a lot of things, but it has to do also with, um, uh, it has to do with, with memory. So let's say we would have a big board with lights on them. And there would be, I think on the board, there would be buttons with red lights in them. And there would be 150 buttons very close to each other. So you would start off with one light would go on and then uh, you would click it. Then that one light would go on and the second would go on. And then you progress and then you try and do as many lights as you, as you can. So it has to do with memory, with the position of it being the light is in that position, okay. Uh, I look at it, but I can't really focus only on that because there are also other lights that I have to look at and still tick. So that's one of the things. Um, at one point, we did a lot of exercises on the computer, just like with a USB stick at home, where um, you would press enter. And at that point, a set of digits would come on. Uh, let's say 34, 12, uh, 56, and 90. But they would flash on like this, always quicker and quicker. And you would have to put those numbers in. In the beginning, you put the numbers in. It's very difficult. You get it wrong. Then you get it right. And when you get it right, you start to do add something. And you start to do that whilst throwing a ball in the air. Uh, then it even goes further. You do it whilst throwing a ball in the air on the left side. And on the right hand side, you have a paper with an arrow on it. And you put the paper on, it, on, on its back and you just take the paper, you don't look at it, at it yet. And that moment when the, when the digits come on, you, you put the paper forwards, you throw the ball and then you see, so it gets more difficult and more difficult and you try to combine on all those things. Um, and for me, I became an expert at it. Uh, I basically almost became their best student. Uh, to, to do those exercises because I was really motivated. But in racing, it really helped me. And at school too, um, which was a nice result, but I didn't really uh, go for it. I mean, that, was, that wasn't the reason of doing it, but it was nice to have that too. I think it's really interesting just the, the way that you're using your peripheral, but it's kind of being able to focus on multiple things at different times. And I can imagine why that would be useful at school 
because you might be focusing your work, but then you hear a noise and normally you do that and now you're distracted and you're like, oh, where was I? But actually now I can focus on my work and hear a noise, see what it is. And that's, yeah. I know there's nothing to be distracted by. Um, and I think, yeah, that, that would be great. I think that would be really useful, something that we could definitely consider uh, moving forward. It'd be, yeah, really good to look into that. Um, I guess what this also links into as well is the the physical side of driving. And from my perspective on the outside, it's probably something that's kind of misunderstood or underplayed on how physical driving actually is. Um, you just want to talk through kind of how physical it is and what toll it takes on your body. Um, if you've got any statistics in terms of like weight loss or that you have. Yeah. And then if you can talk through like what a training program would be to get yourself ready for a race or for a season and how fit and whatnot you've got to be in order to complete a season of racing. Yeah. I think when you start um, in karting, you're not really um, that um, uh, conscious about it because I mean, you're young and it's, it's a sport and, and okay, you don't really prepare yourself that well, I think, but by driving a lot uh, in karting, you drive a lot more than you do with cars those days are a lot more expensive um, but already in karting it's very it's very hard because a body at speed just at speed I mean goes through um, how do you say it? through forces which you can feel which which can tire you I mean only already physically but also the concentration concentration side your mind has to be a lot more awake um, so that also uh, is quite tiresome and um, karting is very, the tracks are quite small, there are not a lot of straights to take a breath, so it's, it's, it's quite difficult and then I think when you progress through motorsports, of course, it becomes part of your routine and most of the guys start, start working with a, a personal trainer or someone who really give them uh, more advice on how to do it. Um, the biggest thing in racing is obviously, obviously uh, the, G, the Gs you are pulling, uh, the G-force in, in a corner. So one G is one time your body weight pressed against you. So if you have, if you're in a racing car and you're doing cornering speeds of 200 kilom kilometers an hour or 250, there probably is three, four, five Gs on your, on your head because the rest of your body is quite strapped. Uh, with with uh, with um, how do you say it? The belts, the belts, exactly. Uh, but your head is loose, um, and your your legs are also loose. But they're in in, in this monocoque, so you're you're quite uh, firm there. But your head is loose, so that means it's four, well, three to five times the weight of your head pressed against your head like this, and you have to keep your head straight. So this is very difficult. And when you're braking, it's the same thing. But then going forward so every time you break with a high downforce car it's it's between three and five g's um in, in f1 sometimes more so that's very tiresome and then the, the concentration side of course is there too so i think when you're progressing your concentration on that part of, of racing is going up and you you're becoming a real athlete and a very diverse one uh we go cycling swimming running uh, but also strength, so it's not one or the other. You also really need to strengthen your upper body to hold on to those Gs, um, and then specific neck training. So 
I think as with any athletes, you, you prepare yourself. I think the only difference with us is that we don't prepare ourselves by doing our sports, only our sports. A lot of like cyclists, they go cycle to do what they do. We don't drive to train ourselves physically. Uh, so this is something we do outside the car. It's a lot cheaper <laughs> and uh, a lot easier to organize. So in terms of like weight loss over over a race and whatnot, how much at the top level, uh, you know, F1s and stuff, how much weight would a person lose? Because it is a physical activity, like you've just said there, as well as having to focus so much. How much weight would they lose over a race? Um, it depends, but it depends a bit on the, the outside temperature uh, and the, the temperature inside the car. Uh, when you're in an open car, like an F1 car, uh, you can have, it can be very hot because it's already hot in the cockpit because of the engine is strapped to your back. Uh, but also the outside temperature and the, um, the, how do you say, the level of... Um, humidity. Humidity, yes. This is a big, big part of losing weight. But for myself, for example, I did 24 hours of spa in 2018. It's in the summer, and at that point, there was a heat wave in Belgium, and it was 37, 38 degrees. And I was inside an, an Aston Martin with a V12 engine, and the, the engine would be in the front, and then there would be the, the exhaust would basically run down where your legs were almost in a safe way, but it's, it's, it's close, all the way to the back and the side. Um, and then we didn't have any air, co air conditioning in the car, because that's... Uh, at that point with that car it wasn't available so in the newer cars uh, they put it in it's also weight um, but at that point the car in the car it became 70 70 75 degrees and we would do a stint of three hours so i would lose i would be weighed before and after i drove and i would lose within those three hours three liters of of, um, of water or uh, yeah i would lose three kilos of weight which is quite crazy. Um, so would you, I'm assuming once you get out, because you're going to have to do another stint in six hours or whatnot, you're trying to replenish yourself with fluids, food, yeah. and you're trying to get some rest as well, right? Yeah, in, in a GT car and, and even in F1, they have, they have bottles with drinks. Uh, most of the time, it's not just water because water just vaporizes. It doesn't give your body anything. Um, it cools it down a bit, but in the GT where I was driving, and this is no joke. After 20 minutes, it was almost tea. It was it was hot, and we put a lot of ice cubes in it in, in combination with sports drinks. Um, and we would most of the time also take some tablets uh, with salt to keep everything inside your body um, and to keep it hydrated. Uh, but you would you would have to drink during driving, and that would be one liter, one half liters uh, normally. Um, uh but afterwards yeah you 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 try to eat the right things and get your body yeah gives your body some energy it needs and in terms of preparing yourself for a race like that what would your training schedule beforehand look like so obviously i know you said there that you could be going to gym and running and stuff have you got an example of what a week would look like to make sure you're in physical condition to perform at your best yeah depends a bit on the weather outside but I think you would try and put in, you try to train six out of seven days. And let's say you would try and um, 
go on your bike or go cycling two or three times and you go running two or three times a week um, and then add that with um, well most of the drivers do two trainings in a day so you have the the conditional side which is which is cycling running swimming um, and then you would try to do uh, some power training uh, also throughout the week but not every day obviously um, so yeah a Monday could start off with three hours on the bike and then in the morning and then uh, five six hours later do a set of 45 minutes body weight uh, and, and planking and 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 uh, abdominal training, let's say. Uh, a Tuesday then could be running in the morning uh, and maybe not do power training. But Wednesday, you get on your bike again and do it again, a bit like Monday. Uh, and then Thursday, um, again running. Friday could be only power, but a bit more power training with real weights. And then Saturday, normally it would be running or biking again. And then Sunday, really a day off. Um, to not uh, put too much stress on the body. And towards the racing weekend, you would really decrease that amount. Uh, you, so you can go cycling is, is, a, is actually a very good thing to do because it, does, it's, it don't, doesn't put a strain on, on, on your legs or your knees. Um, running would probably be a bit less. And then the power training, I think three, four days before you get into a car, you really minima min minimize that. Just resting, ready to perform at that. Yeah, so there's no strain on the, on the muscle or uh, it's just in a calm uh, position, let's say. Perfect. Listen, Sam, we're almost at the end of our allotted time, so I'm going to ask you one question, uh, which is something that I ask everyone, and I'll probably change it a little bit for you, but who is who's the best uh, driver you've competed against and why? Ah, it's very difficult. Um, that's a hard one, I, I, I guess, because there's a lot of drivers in my head, but I, I'm thinking, um, who's the best driver I competed against? Um, um, I think one of the best for me is um, Antonio Felix Acosta, who is in Formula E. Uh, and I, I think I only drove a couple of races against him. Uh, but already at that point in time, when I was 14 or 13 years old in karting, um, he was already at the front. He was, he was very quick, very composed already, I think. And he didn't quite make it to F1. I mean, he was, he was a Red Bull driver and, and test driver. Um, and at the moment, he, he last year became champion from LAE. But for me, as a, as a driver... As a package, he's very good. So he's he's quick enough, obviously. Maybe not the quickest compared to, let's say, a Max Verstappen or some of the other drivers who did get the chance in F1. But it was it was a combination of quick, smart. He can work with uh, big teams, with the expectations of big teams and brands, uh, and he just delivers on every on every aspect of being being a very professional racing driver. So. I don't know. It's it's a difficult and a tricky question. Maybe I'm I'm forgetting someone. Uh, there are maybe drivers purely in speed that I that I would also consider. But then as a package, I think he's very strong. Perfect. Listen, I really appreciate your time and definitely some stuff that I can go away and look at trying to integrate into the training I do. So appreciate that. Stay safe and hopefully hopefully catch up with you again soon. 
Yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.